This week on Geek Explained, our Geek Explained Spotlight series returns as we take a look at what the world would be like if Peter Parker aged in real time. Join us as we spotlight Spider-Man Life Story. Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode features the return of the Geek Explained Spotlight, where we take a look at a specific graphic novel, a specific run, or a one shot comic, and just talk about why I love it. And for this month, we're taking a look at Spider-Man Life Story, an instant classic from Chip Zdarsky and Mark Bagley. I cannot wait to talk about this. I've been holding on to this for a little while now, and I figured, you know... Jumping back into the Spotlight series would be a perfect opportunity to talk about one of the best Spider-Man comics of the last decade, at least in my opinion. We also have this week's weekly review on the newest episode of The Mandalorian. Can't wait to talk about that. And of course, this week's Comics Countdown. But before we get into all of that, let's check in with this week's news. All right, guys and dolls, let's talk news. We have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. Going to kick things off with miscellaneous news, some exciting video game news that I know I was pretty hyped about. Uh, BioWare basically announced that Mass Effect Legendary Edition is going to is going to be coming to uh, consoles and PC in spring of 2021. This is going to be a full and complete remaster of the original trilogy. You know, the good Mass Effect games. No shade to Andromeda. I enjoyed Andromeda for what it was, but it wasn't really as good as the original games. And honestly, I'm pretty hyped about this. Um... I love that original trilogy. That was the first game where I felt like, you know, your decisions really mattered. And it was kind of a trip, like taking your character from one game into the next and into the next. And I'm really excited about this. It is really interesting, though. They uh, they revealed that the, uh, the game, which is going to be, like I said, a remastered version of the entire trilogy, is going to be released on PC, Xbox One, and PlayStation 4. So no next-gen uh, versions of the game. Everything's going to be backwards compatible or as they put it in their press release forward compatible which is such a strange like you you know that they definitely were like oh man we got to make this sound good what can we forward compatible that's the way to go for sure um either way i mean regardless of what gen uh console or if you know of course if you're a pc it doesn't really uh doesn't really matter to you. Um, I'm really excited about this game. I love the original trilogy. Uh, I'm interested to see with this remaster what they do with the first game. Because out of those three games, that one is going to have the hardest time uh, translating into gaming nowadays. Um, because it's so different from the second and third game. It's, uh, it's very much... Uh, more focused on the RPG and the exploration elements, whereas the other ones were more about the combat, the storytelling. 
So I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do here. Should be a really good time. Uh, jumping into comics news... We've got uh, two interesting pieces of news over at DC. Uh, I'll go with the uh, the less bad one question mark first. Um, we might be getting a sequel to Three Jokers. Now, <laughs> uh, I know that um, for the vast majority of people that I've talked to in my circle, um, Three Jokers was a bomb. Um, I enjoyed it for what it was. Very pretty to look at. It was very clearly meant to be a quote-unquote in-continuity sequel to The Killing Joke, but with all of the strange choices that they made, there are rumors that, like, they had to change the ending for some reason. I mean, the book had been in development for, like, two years at this point. Um, I don't know what is left to tell with the sequel. Um, Jeff Johns basically said in an interview, he's like, yeah, we're exploring, you know, what the, uh, what the next chapter would be, but I don't, I don't know. I, I would be in just to check out more of, uh, Faybach's work, but not really. Uh, I, I feel like that, that story is closed, especially if you, if you read all three chapters and, um, it kind of gave a more or less definitive ending, uh, but I don't know. Either way, um, so there's that. Uh, the other news at DC is that we got DC Bloodbath Part Two: Electric Boogaloo, and unfortunately, it is nowhere near as fun as that title se- suggests. Um, I'm just gonna read off the um, the press release that uh, Bleeding Cool put out where uh, basically we know everything that happened with the first DC Bloodbath back in, I think it was August. Uh, This one is um, less flashy, I would say, um, but it is no less... uh, no less newsworthy, I think. So there was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven names released uh, with apparently two more that were unreleased for a total of nine. A lot of these names, again, were like senior members of the staff. So they're getting rid of a lot of like tenured uh, staff members over at DC. I don't know what that means. Maybe they're really trying to push like it's a new age or whatever. But um, the names here, I'm just going to read them off. Um, Adam Phillips, Director of Marketing Services, at DC Comics, uh, Stuart Shrek, sales manager at DC Comics, uh, Adam Phillips. Let me see here. Uh, Adam Phillips was there for 26 years. Stuart Shrek was there for 21 years. Uh, Fletcher Chu Fong, events director at DC Comics, who was there for 18 years. Uh, Sandy Yi as SVP Global Franchise Management uh, over nine years. Uh, Lisette Osterlo, uh, VP of Digital Marketing and Events. Uh, with uh, seven years at DC Comics and 13 years with Warner Brothers. Uh, Alex Carr, group editor at DC Comics after uh, two years. Um, But the big name here that I don't think a lot of people were expecting to be on here, but um, I guess makes sense at the end of the day, is Michelle Wells. If you don't remember that name, we talked about it during the... um, during the first DC Bloodbath alongside the announcement of the co-editor-in-chief titles. She got one while um, Marie Javins got the other, and the two of them were going to work together alongside um, 
uh, Jim Lee. And when Marie Javins was elevated into the sole uh, editor-in-chief position, a lot of people were wondering, well, what happens to Michelle R. Wells? And um, now we know. Michelle Wells uh, says co-editor-in-chief at DC Comics, vice president and executive editor DC Children's Young Adult after four years at the publisher. So, I mean, it makes sense, you know, when you you know, put someone in a role and you kind of, you know, fill that role with someone else, you know, this person, you know, gets, gets the ax, but it's, it's no less sad. It sucks for these people who, you know, really put their time into this company. But I mean, we just, we don't know exactly what the plan is here. So that's, we can only go off of like conjecture and hearsay at this point. So, um, that racks up, comic news we're going to jump over to film news uh two pieces of film news first off the next transformers film has found its director uh we are getting creed 2 director stephen capel jr to direct the next transformers film this will be the first transformers film with the transformers title that is not directed by michael bay um bumblebee was directed by somebody else but that wasn't like transformers bumblebee it was just bumblebee uh so i really liked creed 2 i know you know it wasn't as uh as praised as the first Creed, because the first Creed is a masterpiece. But I really enjoyed Creed 2. Um, it's definitely a, a film that I go back to every now and then. And I'm excited to see where this new direction goes for the uh, for the film series. I mean, the, it's ripe for a reboot, so we'll see what happens there. And then also we got the very first trailer for Batman, Soul of the Dragon. We've heard about this for a while. Uh, I believe we first talked about it during the Fandom event where they... Um set up the whole slate of DC films of DC animated films. that's going to be coming out in 2021. Uh, this looks great. Honestly, I'm really, uh, I really like it. I wish that uh, DC had enough faith in the, in its characters that they didn't have to throw Batman into everything because I think this is just as interesting a story without Batman, but this is like set in the seventies. It's got that vibe, that feel uh, and, Batman is going to be teaming up with Richard Dragon, Shiva, and Bronze Tiger, who is uh, being voiced by Michael J. White. Michael J. White is is Bronze Tiger. I just just forever, for now and forever, um, to go after some of the. Um, it looks like basically just organized crime, which I'm down for. Uh, 70s action, kung fu, fighting. I'm I'm all there. I'm all in for this. So it looks really good. Uh, Bruce Tim is heading it up, so you know that there is going to be a certain amount of quality to it. And it's rated R, which is really... Um, they didn't really make a huge deal about this uh, with any kind of press release or anything, but it's clear as day when you boot up the trailer on YouTube. Like, it says it's rated R, so I'm really interested. Uh, should be a good time if they go kind of the route that, like, something of uh, Batman versus Harley Quinn I'm not going to be too into, but if they decide to go to the route uh, when it comes to, like, rated R of, like, Justice League Gods and Monsters, I would be much more interested in that. So we'll see. I'm really excited for it. Uh, it is coming out 2021. It's going to be the first of the uh, DC animated films to come out next year, and I think it looks great. Now, we've got a 
bunch of TV news, so let's go ahead and jump into it. First off, a little bit of sad news here. Uh, the uh, Batman HBO Max spinoff that is supposed to be uh, kind of spinning out of the Matt Reeves Batman film has lost its showrunner. Uh, the current showrunner has, or the former showrunner, I should say, uh, has left the project due to creative differences with Matt Reeves, which is unfortunate. But... Um, it's still, you know, ongoing. They're looking for a new showrunner right now, so best of luck to them to find one. I'm still really excited about it. We've gotten a little bit more details about the show itself. It is going to be focused on a, as of now, unnamed uh, crooked cop dealing with the... Um, rise in hysteria after the debut of the batman so i'm really excited i hope it's either okay i hope it's either one of like two or three characters so uh harvey bullock is like the easiest one i think um but i could also see um uh renee montoya or for me the one that i would go for is detective ellen yin uh from the batman but that's just me um i think you could even go with crispus allen if you really wanted to but uh those names are kind of the ones that i'm going to be looking for to be the lead for this uh if not gordon himself so i'm sure he's going to have a big presence on this hbo and jeffrey wright are very you know well familiar with each other so i'm looking forward to it this this sh- this is a little bit of a speed bump a little bit of a setback but i think overall the uh the ip and the premise of it is strong enough to keep the show rolling forward without too many delays uh we also got the unfortunate news that wandavision will not be releasing in december 2020 like it had been um advertising it officially will be dropping into disney plus on january 15th of 2021 which makes 2020 the very first year that has no mcu releases whether on tv or in film and that's wild because this was supposed to be another big year for marvel you know we're supposed to have black widow we're supposed to have eternals we're supposed to have um uh, falcon and the winter soldier wandavision all of these uh projects that just had to be pushed back because of the pandemic it's it's crazy to think about how different the world would be if uh if the pandemic didn't happen it it would be interesting to kind of go back and look at how things would go but i'm still excited january 15th 2021 isn't super far away it's too far away from my liking but it's not like oh you know october of 2021 so it'll be kicking off the festivities for marvel the return of the mcu in 2021 so I'm still hyped for it. Still should be a good time. Uh, Also, Umbrella Academy has been officially renewed for season three. They did a little... um thing on social medias and uh instagram and twitter announcing it i'm i knew this was coming but it's great to get a confirmation i'm excited i love the umbrella umbrella academy you know how much i do and the way that they left off season two we had to get a season three whether or not this is the conclusion um Either way, I'm really, really hyped for season three of Umbrella Academy. And then finally, some really exciting news. Um, we talked about a couple weeks ago during our uh, DC Future State Guidebook with uh, guest Malcolm Joshua Russell Nelson. Uh, go back, check that out if you haven't. Uh, if you haven't listened to it yet, if you have any questions about DC Future State, we answer everything you need to know about it in that episode. Uh, during that, we talked about how excited we were about the new Wonder Woman, Yara Floor. Well, apparently DC and Warner Brothers are very excited about Yara Floor as well because they announced that 
Yara Flores join in the Arrowverse. I don't care if they want to call it the CW-verse or whatever. It's the Arrowverse. Uh, they announced that uh, Greg Berlanti and co. are going to be putting together a Wonder Girl show, probably to replace Supergirl after uh, it finishes out its final season. And Yara Flor is going to be the lead. So we are getting Yara Flor, whether, you know, however you feel about it, I'm super hyped. I really like the idea of Yara Flor. Her design is super cool i think her backstory being of both um brazilian amazonian uh all of that is really super cool uh and joelle jones has already talked about how she is going to have a i don't know if it's an it's an ongoing or limited series following dc future state featuring yara floor so yara floor is here to stay and i could not be more excited about that really looking forward to this um and if they give it as much attention as a lot of the cw uh, has given its shows specifically if they give it as much attention as Black Lightning, um, The Flash, they're going to be in really good hands, and I can't wait to see this. I'm really excited. This is the first time we're getting a Wonder Woman esque show since the Linda Carter show way back in I believe it was the 70s. So this is really exciting. I'm really looking forward to this, and I can't wait to see what they come up with. But that is going to wrap up the news for this week. We're going to roll right on into the main course, the entree, if you will, of this episode, which is our Geeksplained Spotlight on Spider-Man Life Story. I'm not going to lie to you. I have been waiting to talk about this book for a while. Uh, this is our Geeksplain Spotlight for the month of November. Every month, mostly every month, I take a look at a specific uh, comics run, uh, miniseries, graphic novel, one-shot, and just talk about what I love so much about the book. And this month... We are taking a look at Spider-Man Life Story. Uh, I'm going to just go ahead and put this out there. There will be spoilers. I'm going to be talking about this book in depth. I, um, I absolutely believe if you haven't read the book yet, pause this, go read it, come back. Uh, if you want to listen to the rest of this, that's the reason we have timestamps in the description of every episode. Uh, if you want to just skip this, listen to the rest of the episode, come back to this part later, feel free to do that as well. But if you have not read the book, we are going to be spoiling it. And this book absolutely deserves to be read. No amount of me talking about it, even though I have taken meticulous notes and I've read through it multiple times, uh, is going to do justice to the storytelling that is involved in this book. So, full disclaimer, TLDR, go read this book. Um, but with that out of the way, uh, I want to talk about Spider-Man a little bit before we get into the book itself. Uh, Spider-Man was created in, or 
I should say Spider-Man debuted in Amazing Fantasy number 15 all the way back in August of 1962. Peter Parker made his debut in that book and has been a mainstay in not just Marvel Comics, but in comics in general since then. We are going off on almost, what, 60 years pretty soon here? What is this, 40, 50? Yeah, he's going to be hitting 60 years in... um, no. Yeah, right? Because 60... Cause play, yeah, I'm, I'm dumb. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be 60 years in a couple of years from now. And um, it's it's pretty interesting looking back on the, uh, the impact that that character has had throughout um, pretty much all of comics. And not just comics nowadays, uh, in mainstream media movies tv shows video games miles morales is amazing it's a great game you should play it um he's everywhere and throughout the years uh in multiple stories whether it was the death of gwen stacy the uh magnificence that is the clone saga um all the way through stuff like one more day um peter parker has had uh an interesting relationship with uh time You see, like most characters, like most comic book characters, uh, Peter is on a, like, sliding scale when it comes to age and when it comes to time. Um... He had he started off you know midway through high school. Uh, the most that he pretty much aged was getting into college, graduating college, and ever since then he's been anywhere from like twenty three to like thirty five. And there's never been like a real like change or progression with that. Um, most of his stories involve him you know, dealing with normal bachelor stuff, or as it comes around, you know, newlywed stuff, and then back to bachelor stuff, because he made a deal with the devil, like we all do when we're newlyweds. Uh, it's It's been really interesting if you, you know, chart his life from his debut all the way up to today, where he is um, arguably in one of the better runs of the past, you know, decade or so with Nick Spencer dealing with Kindred and him starting to get back into the groove that he was in prior to One More Day. Um, But there were two names that throughout the years with comic creators coming and going that really caught my attention throughout my fandom of Spider-Man. I've been a fan of Spider-Man since I was a little kid. I got hooked on the... um, the animated series and then the video game uh, and then the movies and all that stuff it just kind of snowballed but i remember back in the very early 2000s when there was a little book that could called ultimate spider-man where for the very first time since his inception Way back in 1962, Brian Michael Bendis and artist Mark Bagley were rewinding the clock. They were taking Peter Parker, who at that point had been through a lot, and was a young adult, uh, maybe a middle adult, you know, closer to 30 than 15. And in the Ultimate Spider-Man series, which kicked off the Ultimate Universe alongside Ultimate X-Men, um... Peter Parker was brought back to high school age. And this book was 
seminal reading. It was required reading if you were a Spider-Man fan. Because the things that they did in this book, the world that they inhabited, the stories that they told, were not only new and fresh and all new, um, to borrow a Marvel-ism, they were also ideas that would be taken and remixed for every type of media, whether it was the Ultimate Spider-Man game, whether it was the Ultimate Spider-Man uh, cartoon, whether it was all all of the influences that not just Ultimate Spider-Man, but the Ultimate Universe in general have had on the MCU. Uh, the thing that really struck me when I was reading Ultimate Spider-Man was the art. Mark Bagley has a very distinct art style that you can pick out in a lineup no matter the book. Um... And the way that he drew Peter, there was a certain love there. There was a certain attention to detail there. And, you know, it is, um, it's, I think, fitting that the book was titled Ultimate Spider-Man. Because for me and for a lot of people, this was the ultimate experience on Spider-Man. This was the ultimate entry point into the character. Because they took all of the you know, decades of history at that point that had already transpired and brought it into modern day, the modern day of of early 2000s, by the way. So there's a lot of things that, you know, may not have aged super well nowadays, uh, you know, some odd 20 years later. But this was something that I was immediately blown away by when reading this book because at that point I was used to a very uh, to a certain art style and the way that Bagley drew these characters the way that he gave characters new designs the way that he would uh, fill layouts the way that he would um, just map things out to tell a story was something that I wasn't super familiar with when it came to Spider-Man at that point in my young comic reading experience and It just kind of blew my mind, and it really uh, opened the door for me to experience what Spider-Man comics could be and should be when you are reading the character. And quite a few years later, there was another creator that gave me that same feeling, and that was Chip Zdarsky. Now, Chip Zdarsky has kind of been on the rise for the last, you know, five, ten years at this point. Uh, He was... He gained a lot of notoriety for books like uh, Howard the Duck on the Legendary Star-Lord miniseries. Um, But the book that really got me on board with Chip Zdarsky as a writer, you know, nowadays he is doing Daredevil. Nowadays he's doing pretty much everything alongside Donny Cates. Um, But the book that really, you know, got me hooked on Chip Zdarsky as a writer was Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man. Now, if you haven't read this book, first of all, do yourself a favor. Go read this. Go read this run. It is incredible. He works with such amazing artists. And it's a fun story that really gives you a street level, a more intimate, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man rather than the, you know, global, you know, universe-destroying fare that he seems to deal with the Avengers all the time. And that's not to say that shit does not go down in uh, Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man. It absolutely does. But that book really um, gave me something that I had been missing with Peter Parker for a while now. Because at a certain point, especially since, you know, at that point, Dan Slott had become a monolith to himself when 
you look at his run on Spider-Man for years. You know, everyone was kind of used to how Spider-Man talked, how the, his stories would go. And the Spectacular Spider-Man book really shook things up for me when reading Spider-Man. And it was a breath of fresh air. And this, just like Ultimate Spider-Man, gave me a sense of, like, this is how Spider-Man should be treated. This is how Spider-Man stories should be um, should be experienced. And when I heard that both Mark Bagley and Chip Zdarsky were attached together on a Spider-Man project, I cannot tell you how excited I was. And then, when they unveiled the premise to Spider-Man Life Story, I was hooked immediately. We've talked about this. I, I, If you go back into the archives of this podcast, you will hear me talk about it. You will hear me talk about it. I believe it was, um, it was one of our uh, top five comics you should be reading this year episodes. There's only been three at this point, so it's not that hard to find. It might have been the second one, but it was the only book, and I'm, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the only book that I've ever put on that list, accounting for the other two years as well, that hadn't come out by the time that that episode came out. And it was a book that, in that episode, I said, this book has not come out yet. I don't know if this is going to be trash, but it is going to be amazing. You know it's going to be amazing. So I'm putting it on this list. And, oh boy, did it pay off and did it exceed all expectations. So, the basic premise behind Spider-Man Life Story is that Spider-Man made his debut in 1962. What if... Spider-Man aged the same way that comics aged. What if he aged in the John Constantine Hellblazer style, where he aged in real time? You know, the first part, you know, picks up in 1966, and we just go decade by decade with this character, watching him age and grow in real time along with the Marvel Universe around him. It's such a novel concept because it's not done very often, and it goes against every single inclination that any comics company has ever had because you want characters, especially successful characters, to stick around for a very long time. And if they age in real time, then there's, you know, there's a certain expiration point for them. So characters will constantly be, be on that sliding scale that I mentioned earlier. Bruce Wayne has gone from, you know, late 20s to 40s to 50s, back to 30s to 40s, back to late 20s, all over the place. Um, and it's because he's such a popular character and because they want to keep him around. And Spider-Man, to a lesser extent, because they've kind of kept him within, you know, a decade of himself, um, has experienced the same thing. So having this concept of what if Spider-Man, one of the most popular and enduring characters of the last 50, 60 years, aged in real time as the Marvel Universe aged around him, um, that's a recipe for uh, just incredible storytelling, especially when you have Chip Zdarsky writing and Mark Bagley on art. So let's go ahead and just dive into it, because I want to talk about this. We're going to be kind of giving this the same treatment that I gave Superman Up in the Sky, where uh, in that episode, if you haven't listened to it yet, one of my favorite spotlights that we've done, uh, I went chapter by chapter, and I'm just going to talk about kind of the basic tenets of what happens in each chapter, each decade, and what I love about those uh, those specific chapters. So 
let's just go ahead and dive right in. Chapter one is the 60s. Um, the book opens up in 1966. Peter Parker has been Spider-Man for, I believe it said, four years at this point since he made his debut in 62. Um, this book is interesting because uh, this kind of sets the tone and sets a shadow over the rest of the book, as any first chapter should. Uh, Vietnam is looming hard over the U.S. Uh, superheroes are in a weird place because not only are they expected to uphold the peace and, you know, defend uh, New York specifically because we don't go anywhere else in the Marvel Universe uh, from supervillains. But now the question becomes, do they go overseas to protect American interests in Vietnam? And Peter Parker has been dealing with a lot at this point. Um, they're in college. He is, you know, in the fledgling stages of his romance with Gwen Stacy. And we see that Flash Thompson is about to head overseas and is about to, you know, join, you know, the military presence over in Vietnam. And there's this great, um, it's just, there's this great scene where Peter Parker and Flash Thompson get to have this amazing kind of reconciliation that they've never had, um, at least in that era of the comics, where they kind of address, you know, the stuff that went wrong when they were in high school and then again when they were in college. And I really dug that. I really like that Flash Thompson is a character who is rife with just uh, storytelling possibilities and storytelling potential. And something that I really love about the character is that he... Um, he has gone the full gamut of being super unlikable to being probably one of the best characters in the Spider-Man books. And so you get this great reconciliation with them. Um, he's still, you know, Peter Parker is still best friends with Harry Osborn, of course, uh, which really kind of throws things off when uh, Norman Osborn reveals that not only is he uh, Green Goblin, but he is also he also knows that Peter is Spider-Man. And so they have this really great tense scene, which I the only way I can describe it to you is it's the same way as in uh, Spider-Man Homecoming when uh, uh, Michael Keaton's vulture realizes that Peter Parker is Spider-Man and the tenseness of that car uh, of that car uh, conversation. It's the same thing that uh, Peter and Norman go through at the bar. And they have this whole, you know, kerfuffle where the two of them are going back and forth. They uh, fight on top of this building. Spidey pulls a billboard over... Uh, over Green Goblin, and just like in the mainstream comics, as well as adaptations like Spider-Man Blue, uh, Norman forgets that he's Green Goblin. He just does. And unlike the comics, Spidey goes to the police, and he calls in an anonymous tip that gets Norman arrested and put in prison, even though at this point in time, he doesn't know or remember that he's the Green Goblin. Uh, there's also a great... Um, uh, self, you know, self-loathing that uh, Spider-Man kind of goes through a period of that. I mean, self-loathing and anxiety is baked into the Spider-Man character. But during the conversation that he's having with Flash, you know, he's like, why are you doing this? Like, why are you going across the seas to probably get killed? And Flash is like, because it's what Spider-Man would do. And the fact that, Sp that Flash Thompson is like the number one Spider-Man superfan has always been one of my favorite aspects of the character. It's so, so good. Um, 
after this, Spidey also has this run-in with Captain America, who, because this is the Marvel of the 1960s, has only been frozen in the ice for like 20 years. He basically fell asleep during one war and woke up at the onset of another. And so he's telling Spider-Man, like, I'm probably going to go across, you know, I'm probably going to go overseas. I'm probably going to go participate in this because I just, I need to see what's going on there. Um we already know that Tony Stark and Iron Man are involved with uh, with the U.S.'s uh, efforts in the Vietnam War, so I need to go see what's going on. And he tells Spider-Man, like, regardless of what you decide, you are going to make the right choice because you know that, you know, he doesn't say these exact words, but he's like, you know that with great power comes great responsibility. So you know the responsibility that you have. And so... Peter, you know, takes that to heart and he rushes to the train station to see Flash off, but he's late by 10 minutes because he was gabbing with Captain America. Uh, him and Gwen have this real, like, ar- this re- this big blow-up argument and Gwen suddenly realizes that, hey, you've got, like, something poking out of your shirt and it's Peter's Spider-Man costume. And the book ends with Gwen discovering that's, that Peter is Spider-Man. So freaking good. Uh, This carries right over into chapter 2, which is the 70s. Ten years later, uh, we come to find out that Flash Thompson is dead. Uh, There's a great little bait and switch at the beginning of this... at the beginning of this issue where uh, Peter is talking to someone who he knows very well, someone who um, uh, he is very familiar with, but it's their grave. And so, you know common you know uh common knowledge of spider-man you know would dictate that oh he's talking to gwen stacy because he would do that every so often after she had passed and then he's like yeah and gwen does this and it's like wait a second and gwen shows up she's like are you okay and he's like yeah just talking you know just talking and as they walk away you come to find out that flash thompson has died uh that he died in uh he died in nam and it was like two years prior and so it's very sad. It's very sad, but it's, you know, it's a grim reality. And this kind of, you know, sets the tone for all of the grim realities that we are going to be facing across this, uh, across this story. Um, this introduces us also to uh, two characters who are prominent, not just in this book, but also in uh, Peter's life regardless of the continuity. And that's Reed Richards and Otto Octavius. Uh, Reed is, you know, this recluse, essentially, this recluse scientist at the Baxter building where uh, he's working with Peter on making a better tomorrow. And they're also working with Otto Octavius, uh, who has turned over a new leaf ever since marrying Aunt May. So that still happened in this continuity. I love it. I love it so much. Um, And it's so fascinating to me that they decided to go that route, that you know, of the different pieces here and there that the story would take from throughout uh, Peter's actual, like, publication history, they decided to keep that because not only is it an interesting story beat for this chapter, but it also informs everything that happens in the rest of the book, especially at the conclusion. We catch up with... uh, with Harry, who is, you know, talking to Norman, who's still in prison, and Norman remembers that he is, uh, he's the Green Goblin, and he tells, um, he tells Harry, like, look, man, you know what to do, and Harry's like, yeah, I know what to do. We catch up with Peter and Gwen, and they are working with Miles Warren, which should immediately sound off some warning bells. Uh, the two of them, you know, are very chummy with Miles Warren, and, you know, we all know how much of a creep Miles Warren is, but this... 
Uh, this issue brings us the debut of Mary Jane Watson. She shows up uh, for the first time in this story, and she's, you know, in a relationship with Harry, and Harry's constantly, you know, passed out with a combination of alcohol and different pills. Uh, Harry, or Harry, uh, Peter and Mary Jane have this big, you know, argument in the nightclub where MJ reveals, like, hey, I know you're Spider-Man. Like, that doesn't give you an excuse to be a shit friend. And she's like, I've known since we were kids. I've known, you know, I was living next door to you and I would see you freaking leave out of your window every night. Like, I, I know. I've always known. But that doesn't give you the excuse to blow people off and shut people out of your life. And it's really, um, I don't know, it's really interesting because this kind of starts that downward spiral for Peter. In the next scene, he's arguing with Reed and he, you know, reveals that. Uh, Sue left Reed with the kids to go be with Namor, which is like, we never see Namor at any point during the story. But I love the fact that that happened because realistically, you know, if Sue is stuck between a person who she deeply loves but wouldn't give her the time of day because his because of his pursuit of science versus a literal king who is fully devoted to her every waking need, what do you think is going to happen? Like, so I, I liked that. I liked that they had a little bit of a falling out. Um, at the same time, Harry and Mary Jane's relationship is crumbling. And he decides to, you know, get some air, literally, by donning his black goblin costume, which I think is so cool looking. I'm looking at it right now. I'm flipping through the pages here. Um also, quick shout out just before we get into, you know, all of the other stories. Uh, one thing that I love is all of these uh, Spider-Man costume designs that Bagley uses throughout each issue. No issue uses the same uh, costume design, which I love. Um, and it's constantly like, oh, it's like it looks like it's of the time. And as the uh, chapters go on, you start to see more um, cybernetic, cybernetic components, start to see more... Um, I don't want to call them, like, crutches, but enhancements to, like, you know, uh, keep pace with his uh, with his age. So they have this big, uh, Spidey and uh, Black Goblin have this big kerfuffle over in uh, Miles Warren's lab because Miles was doing some cloning technology, some back, you know, backdoor stuff for Norman because he was, uh, he basically made a clone of Norman. But it's revealed that he also made clones of Peter and MJ, or uh, no, Peter and Gwen. And the two of them have this big argument. We find out that just like in the main continuity, Miles Warren is a super creep and wants Gwen all to himself. Um, during the fight, there's, you know, a, an errant pumpkin bomb that explodes the lab after uh, Peter is able to get Miles and Gwen to safety. Miles gives this, like, just shriek in agony. And he's like, no, you don't understand. Uh, Peter goes back in and he finds that the Gwen clone and the Norman clone are dead. He rescues the Peter clone because, of course, he's Spider-Man. So he rescues the clone and then it's revealed that the Gwen clone didn't die. The Gwen clone has been married to Peter Parker. Miles Warren, get this, abducted Gwen at some point in the past 10 years and kept her on ice while making a clone to be with Peter Parker. 
And so Peter, like, goes back into the lab and finds that Gwen is dead. And it's a great, it's such a great way to have your cake and eat it, too. He gets this life with Gwen while also having to still suffer the death of Gwen Stacy. Um, it's it's just great. It really, really is. Um, we come to find out that, you know, the Pete clone and the Gwen clone are going to leave New York. They're going to go and be together. And, um, you know, we catch up with Mary Jane. who's just like, yeah, sorry, Peter didn't want to come. And they're like, no, no, it's cool. I get it. You know, he's, he's dealing with a lot of stuff right now. And so they take on the identities of Ben and Helen Parker and they leave. I think they're going to like Chicago or something. Um, and we get this great moment where Mary Jane goes up to visit Peter and he's just doing his Peter Parker thing, just like depressed, sitting alone in his room in the dark because his wife, he found out his wife is dead and his clone wife has left him to be with his clone self. You know, typical Peter Parker problem. So now he's just left alone and he has this argument with MJ and it's very similar to um, the actual death of Gwen Stacy where after she dies he goes through this downward spiral and MJ shows up to him and she you know he tells you you know just go away leave me alone and she you know goes up to the door and she closes it and she's there for him and it's the same way here and that's another attention to detail and another you know kind of uh feather in the cap for both Bagley and Chip Zdarsky and the way that they pay homage to this story and to these characters. So I really, really dig it. So the next chapter, chapter three is in the 80s. And this might be my favorite out of all of the issues because this deals with two very distinct wars, the Cold War and the Secret Wars. So the story opens up and uh, MJ is in labor. Uh, not only that, she's having to deal with uh, Aunt May, who is suffering from dementia. And it is sad. It is depressing as all hell. Just watching like MJ like be in a really tough spot. They're having twins. She's pregnant. Uh, she's in you know the hospital room. And she's having to have conversations with May, who is just coming in and out because of her dementia. It is, uh, it's depressing. Meanwhile... Spidey's stuck on Battle World during the original Secret Wars event, and just seeing this two-page spread that Bagley has uh, just blown up for 1984, where, you know, you get to see all of these characters that were in the original Secret Wars, some that weren't in the original Secret Wars as well, uh, showing up, showing their age. It's really, it's, it's fun. It's really exciting to see. Um, and we also get... You know, the um, the next big uh, Spider-Man uh, redesign where he's actually in actual like armor and it makes sense. They're on they're at war. They're on another planet. And we get, you know, the um, the iconic moment where Peter uh, meets the symbiote. And then it, what I like is that, you know, we all know that Secret Wars was just ridiculous. There's no like narrative purpose behind it. It was created to sell toys. But what I love is that the moment that Spidey gets the uh, the symbiote attached to him, it just cuts to the end of Secret Wars. They're like, we we you you know what happened in Secret Wars, and even if you don't, you don't really need to know what happens in Secret Wars. The important part is he's got the symbiote now, so he gets the symbiote. He returns, and at this point, 
He's got two babies. He missed the birth of his children. It's been a while. And so, you know, Spidey comes to Mary Jane and they have this, you know, come together where they're just like, you know, stuff's been crazy while you've been gone. The remaining heroes have had to deal with like the Cold War going on. And it's, um, I'm just going to read this here because I, I love the way that they, uh, they frame this. Uh, this is Peter's, uh, this is Peter's narration where Mary Jane says the world has gone crazy. And he says, she was right. It did go crazy. For years, tensions between the U.S. and Russia escalated. A cold war with Russia fearing an inevitable superhero invasion. The threat of an arms race they couldn't win. So when suddenly the greatest American superheroes disappeared, for secret wars, they struck. And there's this great just full page spread of Sue Storm and the Vision, who are like, it looks like the only ones left who didn't get picked up for Sue for uh, Secret Wars. And it says, America struck back, but Russia had superpowered beings as well, none of whom disappeared. One was Ivan Kragoff, the Red Ghost, a scientist who developed the technology to rev- render items intangible, like incoming missiles. So think of this. Uh, at the time of the Cold War, Russia comes up with this missile that can go intangible at will. So any kind of uh, efforts that we would have to, you know, destroy it or disarm it, useless. So you see the vision like catching this missile and it goes, uh, the heroes left behind did their best against the Russian attack, but it wasn't enough. The Vision, an android Avenger who can change the density of his body, altered the course of a missile to avoid Manhattan, but it still landed just outside of Allentown, Pennsylvania. So this is a nuke, Um, and it says Vision became intangible upon impact, so he was unharmed, but he witnessed it all from the center of the nuclear hurricane. People, homes, nature itself wiped away. And there is this just haunting visual of Vision just standing in the middle of this nuclear wasteland that used to be Allentown, Pennsylvania. And it just says he's still intangible. No one knows if it was caused by the explosion or the horror. And it's like, it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking uh, that the Vision has had to, he just like, he shut off. Just emotionally, just physically, he is just the horror of it. I I like to believe that it was the horror of it because the Vision is much more human than a lot of people give him credit for. But uh, it was it's it's terrifying. Uh, we come to find out that uh, Peter and Reed have been you know researching and trying to you know figure out how to kind of reverse the effects. When Reed gives Peter a newspaper that shows symbiote spider-man with a big old rifle and it says spider-man murderer uh which i love it's it's great um and so spider-man uh basically goes back to new york and he you know before this he has a conversation with reed and reed's like hey just so you know this super cool uh spider-man costume you have it's um it's alive and it is bonding to you and spider-man's like I know, like I've known for a while. I did tests on it as soon as I got back, but it's, you know, I'm getting old. I'm getting slow. Like he was 15 in 1962, and in uh, 1984, that would make him almost 30, 35. So it's 62. He's 15. 20 years later. Plus two. Yeah, he's like 37. So he is he is starting to get towards like midlife crisis uh, 
mid like a midlife crisis um, scenario for him, and he's using this symbiote because it makes him feel strong and fast again. And it's God, I love it. I love the timing of it. It makes perfect sense why he would lean on an alien costume because it makes him feel as strong as he was when he was fifteen, and it's it's so great. So he returns to New York because um, Aunt May is still having dementia, and she walked away with her kids or with their kids. Um, and it's, it's, oh man, it is, it is heartbreaking because Peter and MJ have this conversation about putting, uh, Aunt May in a nursing home and Peter, because of his guilt, refuses to put her there because he's like, she was the only one who took care of me after my parents and uncle Ben died. I can't do that. And they have this big old argument, you know, and she says, you know what, you, you want to take care of her, then take care of her. Like, you've got Parker Industries now, you've got the Spider-Man thing, it's fine for me, you want to ignore me all the time, whatever, but you have kids, and you have a a senior citizen who needs your help. Help her. And it's, again, it's heartbreaking, just just sitting there, and like, you know, facing that, that it's the truth. It's the truth that he's, you know, not willing to accept. And so he, like, Bottles up the symbiote because he's like, I don't want to deal with this right now. Uh, and he goes out in his normal Spider-Man costume and he runs into Craven the Hunter, who is uh, in his own version of the black suit with his rifle. And we're not just getting Secret Wars. We're not just getting the symbiote story. We are getting Craven's Last Hunt. And this is all in one story. I, I, I love it. I love it so much. So uh, Craven's Last Hunt pretty much plays out as it did. You know, Craven talks about, he was like, you know, you're getting old. You're getting slow. And I have to put you down so that, you know, Spider-Man, the image of Spider-Man, the symbol of Spider-Man can continue to be strong. And so he shoots Spider-Man and he buries him. Uh, meanwhile, the symbiote like senses this and it like breaks out, goes to the, um, goes to the grave because at this point in the original comics, I believe, uh, the symbiote story had already happened. Spider-Man was still wearing the black suit, but, um, this is like right before Venom, I believe. And so he didn't have the symbiote for Craven's last hunt, but this story he does. So the symbiote j dives into this grave that had been freshly dug and Spider-Man breaks out of it in this horrifying full, like almost full page spread. Um, and he is just, he's terrifying because you see Craven in his black Spider-Man costume, you know, break up a mugging and he turns around and there is just this venom sized Spider-Man towering over him. I do wish this had been like a full page of him just towering over Craven, but the image alone is really, really cool. So it basically turns him into venom. Like he turns into venom during this story where he's like, you know, you tried to bury me. I'm going to kill you. And, that's when uh, MJ shows up because she watched the symbiote break out of its jar and go after him. And she's got a sonic cannon and she's like, you're, she, you know, Peter basically realizes like, I'm out of control. You have to take this thing off. You know what to do. And so she blasts it. And as far as we can tell from the scene, it's destroyed. So uh, the two of them kind of like embrace. He apologizes because he knows he's been a, just a terrible person, terrible husband. And it just, it, doesn't really it's too late for apologies because the very next scene um mj is packing up the kids she's packing up the she's packing up the kids like she's putting them in boxes to shit them uh she's packing up all of their stuff she's packing up you know taking the kids and she's like we're leaving and the very last shot is just 
Spider-Man head, you know, face buried in his hands and a dementia rattled May just staring out the window. It's haunting. It's absolutely haunting. But the issue doesn't stop there. We need to see, you know, Craven's last hunt through. And that story ended with Craven offing himself. So we come back to Craven's uh, estate where he's got his rifle. He puts the barrel in his mouth. And then the, um, the bottom of the stock on his rifle suddenly moves. And the, the symbiote, which has survived the sonic cannon attack, jumps up the rifle towards Craven and it cuts. And so you know, that's going to be a problem later. So then the next issue, issue four, chapter four, jumps into the 90s. And 1995, what a year that was. Um, and we get to see not just old man Peter Parker still, you know, living his life trying to uh, do his thing at... Uh, at Parker Industries, but we get to see Ben Riley in Chicago following the events of the original clone story. Uh, apparently, he's been living in Chicago as a photographer, as also kind of moonlighting as the red, it's like the red mask. And he is uh, confronted by Doc Ock, who is looking super old and decrepit. And it kind of cuts there over to uh, Peter and Tony Stark. And Tony Stark, because uh, for whatever reason, as age goes on, he gets just to be a worse and worse person. Um, he's trying to, you know, force a merger between Stark Industries and Parker Industries. And uh, Peter's like, nah, dude, not feeling it. Uh, we also get a quick cameo from Jessica Jones. Uh, the two of them having seemingly had this kind of like romance fling uh, while Peter is, you know, trying to be Spider-Man at the same time that he's trying to run this giant company. And so uh, Doc Ock kind of upends everything. And he's basically like, I want to see Spider-Man. I want to fight Spider-Man. Uh we come to find out that Doc Ock, you know, went back to a life of crime following the uh, death of Aunt May. It shook him so bad that he just, like, he was done with it. And so uh, he's able to subdue Spider-Man. And Peter wakes up in a lab across from Ben Riley. And the two of them are surprised to see Harry Osborn as well, who has been captured and put to work by Doc Ock to unlock the secrets of the cloning procedure. He wants to reverse engineer the process so that he can, you know, essentially clone himself and continue to live on. Uh, but during this little, you know, conversation, he realizes during the scans, oh, Ben Riley's the real one, and Peter Parker's been the clone the whole time. Which is just classic clone saga for you right there. Um, ben Riley breaks out. He starts fighting with Doc Ock. The two of them are having this argument. He defeats Doc Ock for a moment. And then he's just, he immediately like turns on Peter. He's like, did you know? Did you know? And Peter's like, if, you knew, if I knew, I would have told you. You know that. And Doc Ock, you know, kind of wakes up and tries to like harpoon both, Pe both Peter and Ben at once. Ben jumps out of the way because he's Spider-Man. But for some reason, Harry doesn't believe that Peter will jump out of the way. And so he throws himself in between the two of them and gets impaled on Ox Tentacle. So as they, uh, as they kind of like realize what the hell's happening, um, Doc Ock is able to like escape. And uh, Peter and Ben just kind of have this you know, goodbye with Harry, where Harry's like, I'm, I'm sorry, like, I'm sorry I was a shit friend, I just, I wish that we could have gone back, and Peter's like, 
you saved my life. And Harry just heartbreakingly just goes, that's what friends are for. And I, oh man, it's tough. It's tough. It sucks. But um, we then cut to uh, Peter and Ben kind of on this rooftop where Ben's like, hey, you know, what's going on? And Pete's like, I'm giving you your life back. Like you're the real Peter Parker. I'm giving you everything that you wanted. You have the life. You have this. I have been Peter Parker for so long and I can't do it anymore. So I'm giving your life to you. And Ben is like, okay, cool, fine. We're going to trade places, but uh, here. And he pulls out the actual, like, Scarlet Spider mask. And that's rereading this this time. I realized he's wearing the same hoodie that, you know, the Scarlet Spider wore in the comics, except it still has the sleeves on it. So I just, I love, again, the attention to detail here is astounding. And so... He hands the mask to him, and he's basically like, I know years ago when I left, I promised I wouldn't draw attention by, you know, being a superhero, but we're both Peter Parker, so I, well, sorry. Neither of us can escape our stupid sense of responsibility. And he, like, gives the mask to Peter, and I just, I love it. So the two of them hug, and then Peter leaves, and we come to find out that the relationship that he's had with Jessica has been twofold, both giving him companionship as well as using jessica's private eye expertise to keep tabs on one norman osborne who was released from prison and has kept a low profile down in i believe it says jersey so peter like walks into this little like this little warehouse where you know norman's just an old man just reading his books with like all of the goblin paraphernalia around him and you know he basically tells norman like hey i know what I know what you did. You switched up the scans. You messed with Otto's, you know, tech to make it seem like I'm the clone and Ben's the real one. But I know that I'm the real Peter Parker. And Norman's just like, ah, you got me. You got me, you you son of a bitch. Um, and he's like, I, I really, you know, I've done this. I've done all of this to undo your life. He's like, you put me in prison. You ruined my plans to escape. He's like, I'm going to destroy everything that you love. I'm going to destroy your company. He's like, Harry still has stocks. We're going to, you know, buy out all your stuff. And that's when Peter realizes he's like, Harry's dead. And Norman has this like freak out because it, it wasn't part of his plan. And so he like, fires off you know the goblin glider at him peter like catches it and just crushes absolutely demolishes it and norman's like screaming at him and then he has a heart attack and his very last words are i hate you and i oh man again like we this is the death of the osbournes this is you know the closing of that chapter and so peter you know shows up you know takes a flight and shows up on the doorstep of Mary Jane and their two kids. And he is finally reunited, able to live the life that he always wanted. Until the 2000s come along. Uh, This was a really great issue as well. I really dug this one. Uh, The cover of this is just one of my favorites. It's so good. I mean, the covers for all of these have been fantastic. But um, basically, we cut into uh, the 2000s. I believe it's 2006. So um, Ben Riley as Spider-Man, is just absolutely getting demolished by Morlun, or Morlun, however you want to say it, uh, in New York City. And one thing that I really like about this is he's almost wearing the superior Spider-Man costume, just, you know, with the just with white lenses instead of... Um, instead of the black lenses and with red gloves uh, and boots. But 
Uh, I really dug this. Basically, Ben has, you know, he, he is just as old as Peter. And so he is kind of outclassed by Morlun, who, like, immediately recognizes he's like, you're not the one I'm here for. And he kills Ben Riley in the middle of, basically, I think, in the middle of Times Square. So we cut back over to uh, Pete and his, uh, his two kids named uh, Claire and Benji. And they find out that, oh, my God, like, Spider-Man's dead. And he's you know, they're, they're coming. They're coming for us. Uh, Peter talks about, he's like, hey, you know, Ezekiel told me about this. He warned me about this, but I thought he was crazy. And he's like, we got to get everybody out of here. We got to go. And his daughter kind of confronts him in his study. He's like, dude, you have to go to New York. You have to fight him. And Peter's like, I, I told you, like, I gave up being Spider-Man. She's like, bullshit. She's like, dude, I remember you went to New York you know, and she never says it explicitly, but she basically like mentions like you were in New York during 9-11, you know, and I saw footage of this red masked man lifting rubble, you know, saving people during that time. You have been doing this like you wouldn't have, you know, gone and done this like I would have expected you to do that, but you had the mask on you. You've been doing it for years without us knowing. And she's like, you need to. You need to go go to New York and you need to solve this. And so it's just, it's a great moment where, you know, he gets that kind of call to arms from his daughter. And so he goes to uh, New York and is confronted by Tony Stark, who's just like, hey, dude, it's me. I still suck. Uh, but by the way, you didn't sign the uh, Superhero Registration Act. So Civil War not only happened, but is still going on because uh, immediately they are beset upon by Captain America's forces and they come to back up Pete and they're fighting. And meanwhile, Morloon shows up at the Parker household. And so while this battle in New York is going on on a much smaller scale than the original Civil War, um, Pete's kids are just trying to survive against Morloon. Uh, they're fighting him and they're just, they're not enough because Morloon is young. He is, well, not young, but he's younger than Peter. He's had experience killing Spider-Man all over the multiverse. And uh, Peter is, you know, really focused on this, you know, on this battle that is going on in New York. And so he's able to suit up in a Spider-Man suit for the first time in 10 years or so. And, uh, you know, kind of joins the fight in New York. Meanwhile, Morlun seemingly kills Benji while Claire is able to kill him. You know, the last shot is Claire holding Benji, Benji's lifeless body because they figured out that Morlun was weak uh, to them when he was sapping the strength from them, when he was, like, feeding on the spider energy. So they used that, they used Benji as bait, and Claire was able to kill Morlun. Meanwhile, uh, the battle more or less concludes, and uh, uh, Cap is able to jump everybody out of there, and he basically tells uh, Peter, like, you know, we're going to deal with this. We're going to deal with it together. And he's like, and Peter gives this really ominous, like not knowing at all that his family's been in danger the whole time. Um, uh, Cap says, you know, we'll deal with it together, son. And, you know, just how Cap talks. And Pete goes, huh, son, we're both old men, Cap. We need to, we need to do what old men should do and leave the world a better place before we go. Which brings us to the final, uh, the final chapter, the 2010s. Um, 
Again, just stunning, stunning work on the cover here. Um, and I'm just going to read this opening to you because it is very important that you understand why this is the best. And this is my favorite out of all of the issues. Three is very close between this and chapter three, but this just is my favorite for everything that happens here. So the comic opens and it's basically, it's a dream sequence. So Pete says, I've been having the same dream lately of the day Uncle Ben died, the day I let the robber get away. It's so real, but the feeling is different this time. The robber runs, but and he's cut off by uh, MJ. And this is now 2019. And so we come to find out that because of the civil war going on, where none of the heroes won, they were just like constantly warring with each other, the supervillains uh, attacked. They took advantage of the situation, much like in the old man universe. Um, and... Essentially, Doctor Doom took control of the world, more or less, if not just the U.S., most likely the world. And so he's got this big old satellite that's like kind of controlling his network. And Peter, old man Peter, is uh, joining up with new Spider-Man, Miles Morales, who is joining up with him to uh, basically try and take this whole thing down. They are going to uh, jump in this little Quinjet, ride it up to the satellite, destroy the satellite and uh, shake the influence of Doctor Doom from the world. They are basically the leads of the uh, of the resistance that are going on here. And so two of them fly up there, and uh, Peter kind of makes a notice, a note that uh, Miles is like acting like super serious for some reason. He's like, I get it, like like this is life or death, but like levity's okay. And so they get up to the satellite, and they're like, something's wrong. And Pete, you know, goes to check it out, and freaking Craven Venom jumps out to attack him. He's like, I've been hunting you all these years, and now I'm going to finally kill you. Uh, Peter is able to defeat defeat Cray Venom with the help of Miles, who at one point is caught by Cray Venom and is just like, oh, wait a second. Oh my god, it's you. Before Peter is able to uh, use a basically like a sonic gauntlet to just shatter uh, Venom, which when the symbiote kind of like disperses, we find out that Craven is nothing but a skeleton. He's a husk. He's basically a body for the symbiote to use. And so uh, Miles and Peter are like shaking it off. They're like, all right, we got to go finish this. And Peter goes, well, all my enemies are pretty much dead. Right, Otto? And you come to find out in the, in the, oh, it's so good that um, we get another twist on a classic Spider-Man story, this one being Superior Spider-Man. You come to find out that Otto has placed his mind in the body of Miles Morales. And so the two of them have this duel on the satellite where uh, it ends with them jumping into the mindscape to have this battle where Doc Ock and these mental projections of all of all of Spider-Man's rogues over the years are fighting against all these different versions of Spider-Man from this series. And it's a great little two-page spread where they're just like, they're warring. And um, sp- all the Spider-Man are able to defeat all of the... Uh, all of the rogues here until Otto just kind of like overwhelms everything. And he's about to like claim victory and like strike Peter down when all of a sudden everything stops. And this mental projection of Aunt May like walks up. She's like, Otto, what are you doing? And he's just like, oh, oh, oh my God. Oh my God. And, you know, she talks about like, you were so angry at the future, but 
you could never like get over your limitations and he's like it's not fair that i lost you it's not fair that you died i can fix this and she's like no what's not fair is like taking somebody who's as young as miles and like taking his entire life away from him because you're afraid of dying and it's oh it's just oh it's so good uh doc ock is one of my favorite if not my favorite spider-man villain so like getting a great send-off for him here as well is just oh it's so good because she uh she basically says you know uh, it was never a competition for my love, Otto. There's no limit on love. And he talks about He's like, I'm, I'm scared. I'm scared. She's like, it'll be okay. And she lets his kind of, his mental projection pass. And he has this, you know, Peter has this great moment where he looks so much like every, you know, every artist's rendition of Uncle Ben. And he's talking to May, the two of them, essentially at the same age at this point, where, you know, she basically... You know, he's saying, you know, I, I'm trying. He's like, what am I trying to do here? And she's like, what you want is to save, what you've always wanted is to save Ben, but you can't. So you save everyone else. You realized years ago that'll never change. So you embraced it. So go, Peter, my sweet boy, save everyone. And so uh, when Peter wakes up, all the damage to the satellite has basically rendered it, you know, their little uh, doomsday device that was going to just shut off the um shut off the network isn't working so he's gonna have to stay there to make sure that it you know the satellite itself is destroyed he loads uh miles's body into the into the single escape pod and you know Otto is just like no no no, wait a second because he's still in miles's body he's like wait a second i can help you let like I, I i realized like i was wrong like help let me help you and peter's like you can help me by giving miles's life back you know He's like, um, and he says, like, sorry, Doc, can't let you sacrifice. It's not your own. And he sends Miles off, Miles Ock. And Peter is like trying to hold this, you know, satellite together so that the, um, or is basically trying to like hold everything together, the pieces of the satellite, so that the, I guess, like the signal can go out to jam everything around the world. And the satellite is falling apart. He's not going to make it. And all of a sudden, in this incredible moment, the symbiote just patches up everything, all the holes, and you find out that, and it's it's never said, okay? It's never said at any point, but to me, it speaks volumes, just this image where the symbiote wanted to be with him so bad that it found, you know, after it was taken away from him, it found the one person who could track him wherever he went and attached itself to him. And when that person was gone, it would rather die with Peter than try to jump to something else. I, did, I, I love it. I just, I really, I love it. And so Peter, you know, kind of closes his eyes. He knows the satellite's about to blow up. And then he like opens his eyes and he's in this dream sequence with, uh, with MJ. And the two of them are just kind of laying in bed. And he's like, I think everything's going to be all right. I think it's, we're, we're going to be good. Um, He's like, of course it is. It's what you do. And then, yeah, so it says uh, Doomsday Pulse activated. So it activates the pulse that knocks out uh, Doom's uh, whole, like, array, his network. And so he's like, you know, I he kind of has this great, like, goodbye moment with MJ. And she even says, like, how could you... How could you believe me? I'm just, like, your brain cooking up an MJ clone. And he's like... <laughs> he says, Shh, we don't use the C word anymore. Clone word. I, just, I love it. Um, he says, besides, after decades together, I know you better than I know myself. I know everything you're about to say, how you're feeling, your worries, your dreams. You're my heart, Mary Jane Watson. You're my jackpot. 
and the satellite explodes and Peter makes the ultimate sacrifice. And so we cut back to Miles having gotten his body back, talking to Otto and Otto is just like, he's like, I'm I'm sorry. And Miles is like, you know, I I thought about like ending your life, but Peter wouldn't do that and and I'm not going to either. And so he goes and he has this conversation with MJ. And, you know, he's just like, I am dealing with a lot right now. And she's like, well, maybe what you need is a reset. You know, you, you need to, she says, maybe you need a fresh start. I'm not saying you should take over. Just you can alter it, make it your own, something new. I mean, you already have the name. And she shows him Peter's original Spider-Man costume. And it ends with Peter's uh, conversation that he was trying to have with May before. And I'm just going to read it because I'm just, I'm tearing up thinking about it now. Uh, MJ, look, I know dreams are boring, but I keep having this one. It's the day Uncle Ben died. The day I let his killer get away. It's so real, MJ. It's like I'm there again. And yes, I know what you're going to say. But this isn't me beating myself up again, like always. It's different this time. It's a good dream. And, oh, I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry. Because I know that some people... um, have said, and it's probably the case where like, oh no, this is Miles now in a different situation. Um, But the entire story of Spider-Man, not just in this book, but Spider-Man in general, is about unwavering guilt that Spider-Man was not able to save Uncle Ben. The entire premise behind Spider-Man is that he was this... um, This nerdy kid who was picked on, hated the world except for his parents, got these powers, was kind of a dick for a little bit, and then his uncle died. And it was because of him that his uncle died. And that guilt has carried him throughout the entire run of his character. I just, I mentioned it earlier. I mentioned it just now. You know, Aunt May, the little mental projection of Aunt May says to him, like, you want, you've always just wanted to save Uncle Ben. But you can't do that, so you, like, torture yourself by trying to save everyone else. And, oh, I'm going to tear up thinking about this now. Um, The book ends with Peter having literally done everything that he could. He starts this issue off by just, like, saying, like, I'm having this dream. I have this dream about Uncle Ben dying. Um, it's the day that Uncle Ben died and let the killer get away. And it's this, um, it's this incredible moment where he's like, this isn't me beating myself up again, like always where he's been, he's been doing it for his entire life instead of, you know, in current comics continuity where it's been anywhere from like 10 to 15 years, he's been doing it for almost 60 years, trying to make up for getting his uncle killed. And, oh, no, I'm not going to cry. He says, uh, but this isn't me beating myself up again like always. It's different this time. It's a good dream. And you have to know that he's been having this dream. He's been having this dream of his uncle dying for decades at this point, where he lets the robber go away. He probably thinks about it every single day. Him letting the robber get away and that robber eventually killing his uncle. And for him to finally find peace. Okay. Um, Him to finally find peace and to say it's a good dream. And him to be like, I've done literally everything I could. I have 
not only saved as many people as I could, but I finally, after my entire life, I was able to balance the scales. Ah, I'm not going to cry. Um, I was able to balance the scales. And, oh, man, it just, it's it speaks to the character. Um, Mark Bagley has gotten to illustrate two of the greatest death of Spider-Man stories of all time. And um, the work that the two of them put into this to show how one life can um, change a person, how decades, how age, how experience can change your perspective, and how one life dedicated to saving as many people as you can just to make up for the one person you couldn't. Um, it's what makes Spider-Man Spider-Man. Uh, this is an instant classic. You know, I've I've talked a lot about all of this stuff, about how much I love this. Um, at the end of the day, this is Spider-Man. If you are, you know, talking to someone and they don't know who Spider-Man is, they don't know what Spider-Man represents, this is Spider-Man. You can hand them this book and tell them this is Spider-Man. From beginning to end, from pillar to post, um, cover to cover, this is Spider-Man. Everything about it. Um, and it shows how much the the creators behind this book, Chip Zdarsky, um, Mark Bagley, the entire team on this, they understand, they know, and they love Spider-Man. Um, you need to read this book. If you haven't read it yet, I'm sorry for spoiling the entire thing, but I warned you, go read it. If you have read it, read it again. I you know, picked up on stuff that I had never picked up on before, reading it for you know, the fourth time, and now just you know, the fifth time going through it with you during this episode. Um, but it's just, it is a masterpiece. It really, truly is. These creators know what Spider-Man represents. They know who he is. And it makes me excited for more takes on this kind of storytelling. You know, one of the uh, best things about the uh, trade is that seeing um, seeing all of the... Uh, all the covers, all the sketch covers that uh, Chip Zdarsky was going through, because he did all the covers, and they're incredible. They're some of my favorite images of Spider-Man of all time. But the original name for this was called Marvel Age Spider-Man. So we might see more stories like this. Marvel Age might become a thing. You know, if it does, I think that there are certain characters that I would love to see this with. Daredevil being absolutely one of them would be fantastic. Uh, the X-Men would be interesting. Um, just there are so many characters that are right, that are just perfect for this kind of storytelling. But if we don't, if we don't get a Marvel Agent initiative, if we don't get more stories like this, at least we will have Spider-Man life story. Because this story is... Uh, gripping it is emotional it is heartfelt and ultimately this story is what makes spider-man so spectacular
It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And this week we are reviewing episode number three of season two of The Mandalorian, entitled Chapter 11, The Heiress. And honestly, this is another freaking great episode. I really, really enjoyed this. Uh, this is directly continuing the uh, plot from last episode. I know a lot of people, myself included, called it more of like a side quest episode, but it was good to have that kind of through line where uh, we get to, we finally get to that port planet that uh, Mando is taking the frog lady and she is reunited with her frog husband and their frog babies. It was very cute getting the frog parents reunited. Uh, Mando is basically like asking a um, uh, Don Calamari to uh, repair his ship and the guy's just like, I. I guess like it, it it was messed up. Like I, I don't know how he got that back in the air, but um, I really enjoyed this episode. I enjoyed it a lot more than, uh, than last episode because it had 90% less spiders in it. Uh, it, I take away 5% for the, uh, for the, what's it called? The recap. And I take another 5% away because of the uh, face hugger soup. I like face huggers about as much as I like spiders. So, uh, docked points on that, but a vast improvement on the amount of spiders that were in this episode. Uh, and honestly, I really, really like this because this was not just continuing the story of the Mandalorian trying to find um, uh, more Mandalorians to get the child back to its people, but also this was a big old tie-in, a big old crossover between uh, the Mandalorian with Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels, with the reappearance of Bo Katan, played by Katie Sa- or Kate Sackoff. Um, I loved it. I I loved seeing Bo Katan there. Uh, I was thankfully not spoiled. I saw it early enough that I was completely thrown off. Um, I I loved it. I loved the reveal. Um, just seeing the armor, which looked straight, like ripped out of the uh, Rebels and Clone Wars show. I just, I loved it. I really, really did. Um, seeing, you know, a group of Mandalorians working together was cool as well. They get to pull off a Mandalorian heist, which you know how much I love heist stories. Um, and you come to find out that this heist was all in, uh, basically all in the effort for Bogotan to find the dark saber. She somehow, you know, a lot of us had questions at the end of the first season of the Mandalorian like how did uh, Moff Gideon get the dark saber? What happened to Bogotan? Cuz Bogotan had it last we saw and um she is on the hunt for it. She is looking for it and I just I loved the structure of this episode. Uh, the Mandalorian heist, them making their way from room to room, them facing off with just kind of the remnants of the Empire, which I love. I love that, you know, the Empire after, you know, the uh, the second Death Star is destroyed, they're just like, long live the Empire, we are, we, you know, we, we gotta hold on to what, what stuff we have left. And it's like, they seem more desperate, which I like. And we don't often see with the... Um, with the Empire, them being more of a fringe group trying to uh, maintain some sort of uh, control over all of these uh, colonies that are now uh, embracing freedom. And that's, to be honest, what I really wish the First Order would have been in the sequel trilogy. Just this, you know, kind of a reversal of like, oh, now the Republic is the big... Um, 
is the big uh, entity in the galaxy, and now the Empire are this fringe group that are almost like terrorists. Like, I, I would have liked that, and I liked the treatment of that here, where they're kind of more, they're a little bit incognito. It was great seeing Stormtroopers again. It's been a while, I believe, a little while since we've seen Stormtroopers. Uh, clean Stormtroopers as well. So I enjoyed that. Um, and just getting to see Bo-Katan, like, kicking ass all, all over the hallways of the ship was really cool when the uh when the admiral or whatever his face like tries to like dive bomb the ship into the ocean was really cool as well uh i also i didn't mention this earlier um the scene on the boat with uh the i i forget their the the name of their race like the squid face people um almost you know killing the child by knocking it into this like I want to say like a sea sarlacc. I don't know what that thing was called, but um, it was it was a great little sequence which had the Mandalorian's debut, um, and we finally got an answer as to why some Mandalorians take their helmets off and why some don't. Uh, I believe I talked about this in the uh, in the episode where I covered the first season, where uh, I thought I was like, okay, there's obviously like two splinter cells of groups. There's obviously two groups, one that are okay with taking their helmets off and one that aren't. Maybe they're like some kind of like, I don't know, like cult thing with the whole this is the way. And we finally got an explanation for it. And we find out that essentially uh, Mando kind of... Um, is devoted to, like, this weird, like, religious zealot offshoot of the Mandalorian race. Um, it's super weird, but I, I kind of like it with the whole, you know, this is the way, never taking your helmet off. Um, and I love his immediately, like, accusatory tone when Bo-Katan takes, his, takes her helmet off. He's like, where did you get that armor? Anytime someone takes their helmet off, he's like, you're not a real Mandalorian. So I thought it was cool. Um, and Bo-Katan was, you know, Katie Sackhoff gave a fantastic performance. It didn't feel like there was any kind of disconnect between, like, the animated Bo-Katan and the live-action Bo-Katan. Her little, like, snide remarks to him, her saying, you know, this is the way to, like, both kind of jab at him, but also to let him know, like, hey, we're on the same side, I'm willing to humor you, uh, was really cool. And I'm hoping that we get to see more of them in the future. We do know that we are still very early on in this season, and we've got a long ways to go. And next episode, unless something happens, which, you know, knowing the Mandalorian probably will, uh, next episode, we're going to go find Ahsoka Tano. Um, The whole reason that Mando decided to help uh, Bo-Katan and her uh, her two friends steal this uh, former Empire freighter was so that... uh, was basically to get information on where to find the Jedi. And so uh, at the end, you know, Bogotan's like, you sure you don't want to come with us? He's like, I got, I have a duty first. And she's like, okay, well, you take this child, take it to the forest planet of such and such, and you find Ahsoka Tano. And my ears perked up immediately, and I'm like, yes, we are going to go find Ahsoka. I have been waiting. I love Ahsoka Tano. I'm really excited to see what they do with her character. If they give her as much uh, reverence and as much attention to detail as they did for Bo-Katan in this episode, we are going to be in good shape for the foreseeable future when it comes to The Mandalorian and for Star Wars on TV. So overall, loved this episode. Cannot wait for uh, this upcoming episode. 
Hopefully we're going to get Ahsoka Tano, though probably not. Uh, knowing, you know, how Mando's adventures go, he's going to get sidetracked halfway through and have to fight some other giant spider somewhere, knowing my luck. Uh, but I'm excited. I've been really enjoying the season so far. It feels, at least so far, you know, taking into account the first three episodes, it feels less episodic than the first episode. There's definitely a through line here, um, more so than the first season, which, again, I love episodic stuff, so it isn't really like a preference, you know, to me, at least. I know some people prefer more of serialized storytelling. Some people prefer episodic. Um, it's just different, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. So I uh, can't wait for next episode. Tune in next week for that. Maybe we'll be talking about Ahsoka Tano. Maybe we won't. Tune in next week to find out. But for now, we're going to roll right on into this week's Comics Countdown. <laughs> Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic shop, a comiXology, or however you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we got to take a look back at last week's books with the Geeksplain Pick of the Week of last week. And surprisingly enough, honestly, the pick that I uh, that I ended up with was not the one that I thought I was going to have going in. Uh, It ended up being punchline number one. Uh, I just, I really dug it for some reason. Of course, you know, bringing in Harper Rowe and her brother Cullen is always uh, a big positive for me, but just kind of diving more into punchline. You know, people have been very negative on the creation of punchline, the utilization of punchline. I really dig punchline. I'm really... I, I like her. I think she she has a cool design. The idea that she is like she gets to be kind of the young uh, the younger sister to Harley Quinn and gets to make all the same mistakes, if not worse ones. Um, I just think it's cool. And the way that they had this kind of develop showing her uh, obsession with the Joker, showing how you know she had this podcast series and like I you can easily see how someone would get indoctrinated like this. And it's just a great, uh, it's a great uh, examination on how uh, public opinion can change based on the utilization of social media and really just any media. So really dug it. Um, I also, I kind of like, because I, one of my guilty pleasures is a show called The Following. It's a Kevin Bacon joint. And uh, even though I think the novelty wore off after season two, but um, the idea that you don't know who to trust, that you don't know who is uh, part of this death cult um, is very exciting for me storytelling wise and narrative wise and the idea that that has now kind of infected Gotham by all of these like oh you don't know who's part of the Joker gang so I really like that I thought it was a great book so that's where last week let's talk about this week we've got one two three five books for you this week we're going to be talking about each book's title creative team and synopsis and I'll be giving synopsis voices which each of those as well let's go ahead and dive into it with first off Rorschach chapter two written by Tom King with art by George Fornes and Dave Stewart um I was interested in the first book I didn't think I was going you know I talked about this before um I didn't know what to expect with this book but you know I was pleasantly surprised by it and um the storytelling of it is very interesting even now knowing as well that as Tom King has uh confirmed this is in the same universe as the uh Watchmen TV show so that gives it for me at least a lot of positives 
So uh, let's go ahead and just dive into the synopsis here. Chapter 2. What's the connection between an aging comic book artist and Rorschach? That's the question the detective investigating the attempted assassination of a presidential candidate must answer. Will Meyerson, a reclusive artist known for his pirate comics, went from drawing the adventures of Pontius Pirate and the Citizen to working with a mysterious young woman hell-bent on making sense of a post-Watchman world. Somewhere in the life of Will Meyerson lies the key to learning more about Rorschach. Eisner Award-winning writer Tom King teams with rising star artist George Fornes to delve into the backroom maneuvering and political corruption in a story that asks how far a man with ideals will go to make them a reality. So yeah, there's a lot of like corporate and political intrigue, which I like. It's a different story than uh, the majority of comics going on right now. I mean, it's right up Tom King's alley. This is, you know, the same, you know, in the same vein of like uh, Mr. Miracle, uh, especially a stranger, stranger things, eventually a strange adventures, which is also dealing with a lot of political stuff. So I've, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Let's say I enjoyed the first issue and I'm looking forward to the next one. Uh, next up, we have Batman number 103 written by James Tynan, the fourth with art by Carlo Pagulian and Guillaume March. Um, Ghostmaker's here. So, <laughs> um, I don't know what to make of Ghostmaker just yet. Uh, hopefully we will get more of a sense of him in this issue in the next one. But this is promising a showdown between the two newest creations of James Tynan the Fourth, that being Ghostmaker and Clown Hunter. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Ghost Stories, Part 2. Batman and Ghostmaker go toe-to-toe to decide which of them will remain in Gotham City's hero. The city is changing faster than ever in the aftermath of the Joker War, and with this change comes increasing dangers as Gotham citizens demand that Punchline be released from prison. Plus, Harley Quinn faces certain death at the hands of Clown Hunter. So I I really like Clown Hunter, okay? Um, I really like Punchline. Ghostmaker is still on the fence for me. I don't really know what to make of him just yet, but um, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, Keep your eye on Clown Hunter. I still believe he is going to end up being Red X in Future State, so uh, we'll see when that comes out. But uh, I think there, there are big things ahead for Clown Hunter, so keep your eye on him for this one for sure. Next up, we have Nightwing, number 76, written by Dan Jurgens with art by Ronan Claquette. Um, this is continuing the... Uh, Nightwing Returns uh, story where Nightwing is officially back and is back in the crosshairs of KG Beast. Uh, I really, I, I dig this. I love Ronan Cliquette's art. I like the direction that Dan Jurgens is going with the character. Uh, all good stuff. All, what happened to my voice just there? Uh, all good stuff. I'm really excited. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The problem with Napkin Man. One bullet robbed Nightwing of his memories and identity. One bullet erased Dick Grayson and replaced him with Rick Grayson. Now, with Dick's true identity returned, KG Beast is back with one last bullet for him. Using B as bait, KG Beast has made it abundantly clear that this one last bullet isn't intended for Nightwing's head. This one is aiming to puncture his broken heart. 
So, KGBs might be killing B here, which would be awful. Um, that is, I think, textbook fridging is the uh, is the term that is used there. Um, I think I, I'm still interested in this. Uh, this is a story that needed to be told, and I'm excited that it's being told. Um, so I'll, I'll be picking this up. I'm looking forward to this for sure. Next up, we have Dark Knight's Death Metal, number five, written by Scott Snyder with art by Greg Capullo. Um, to answer your question, from, or to answer the question I posed from last week on whether the... Um, the Infinity Hour Extreme tie-in was going to be better than the main series. No. No, it was not. But <laughs> um, we're going to move right along. We're almost through with Death Metal. I think we've got one more issue for this before we jump right into, into uh, Future State. So um, we're almost there. We're almost there, folks. Uh, so let's go ahead and just dive into the synopsis here. An Anti-Crisis Part 5. The Man of No Tomorrow. The Darkest Night has won, with absolute power at the villain's fingertips. Wonder Woman and the rest of the DC heroes are nothing to him. As the Darkest Night turns his sights to his true goal, remaking the multiverse in his image, can Earth's heroes rally together to make a last stand? So I kind of thought that's what we were already doing, but um, we do now have uh, Superboy Prime, uh, on deck, which I love, um, as well as Lex Luthor. We got Lobo now. Um, we got a lot on deck. We got a lot on the table here. So I'm I'm still enjoying this. I'm not enjoying this nearly as much as the original Dark Knight's Metal, um, but I think it's you know it's a story that's being told, and I think you know with what they're doing, they're telling it as well as they can. So. Um, I'm looking, I'm cautiously optimistic once again. I'm looking forward to this. But the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up this week, is Captain America number 25. Written by Ta-Nehisi Coates with art by Leonard Kirk with a backup by Michael Cho and Anthony Falcone. This is the big 25th issue. This is going to be uh, a big one for Captain America. We've been waiting to get here. They're still, you know, lingering in the background. Um, you know, they've been talking about for a couple months that uh, Captain America is going to, you know, end pretty quickly, at least this run. And uh, after we found out that Ta-Nehisi Coates is going to be uh, returning to Black Panther, that kind of adds fuel to the fire. So if this isn't the last issue of the run, 26 might be the last issue of the run. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But um, it's been great. It's been honestly great. This last, uh, oh, this current run, I'll Die Young, has been really good as well. I've been really enjoying it. So uh, let's just go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. All Die Young, Part 6, The Promise. To rescue the Daughters of Liberty trapped in Madripoor, Captain America and his closest allies marshal their forces. But waiting in the wings for them is the reborn Red Skull, plus the debut of the all-new Agent 13, along with a second celebratory story by Michael Cho. So yeah, this is, you know, the big landmark 25th issue. Um, pick this up. It's going to be a good time. So that is going to wrap up the comics countdown for this week. To recap, we've got Rorschach number two, Batman uh, number 103, Nightwing number 76, Dark Knight's Death Metal number five, and Captain America number 25. 
And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us here in the Geeksplain podcast, please feel free to subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Also, give us a rating and review. Let us know how we are doing. Uh, it really just helps us out, helps me out, helps the podcast out, helps get the word out of the Geeksplain podcast, out into the uh podcasting stratosphere and into the orbit of listeners just like you and if you do give us a five-star rating and review on itunes apple Podcasts, whatever you want to call it uh, i will read your review right here on the podcast you can write whatever you want you give me that five-star rating and review i will read it here you can join the likes of the esteemed gentlemen c fire nd josh from panels to pixels and matt draper big thanks to them and i can't wait to hear more reviews from from you all. Also, if you want to write into our Geek Explained mailbag, you can do so. If you have questions for me, you want to get my opinion on something, uh, you can send those to geeksplained at gmail.com. Just like our good friend Ryan, I want to get this last name right, Ryan Vandervelden. I hope I said that right, uh, Ryan. Uh, Ryan writes in with this. He says, Hey, Eric, I just recently read Superman Smashes the Clan after hearing about it on your podcast. Yes, love it. Uh, I absolutely adored it. One of my favorite parts was when Clark goes to the circus with Lana Lang. There was one detail I noticed that got me very excited. I noticed that the outfits the trapeze artists were wearing were very similar to the ones worn by the Flying Graysons. That is absolutely true. Uh, it made me wonder if there was a Batman somewhere in this universe. I wanted to know if you would like to see a Batman story taking place in this style. If so, give us your pitch on what you'd like to see personally i would like a story like the animated series episode robin's reckoning i love seeing bruce being a father figure to dick what do you think from a fellow superman fan ryan vandervelen well thank you very much ryan for writing in i do appreciate that um you've got me two of my favorite pieces of uh, comic book anything with superman smashes the clan and robin's reckoning if you go back in the archives and listen to our episode on my favorite batman the animated series episodes you know that robin's reckoning is at number one for me it was the very first batman episode i ever watched and it is still my favorite to this day and honestly i wouldn't mind more of uh more of that style Superman Smashes the Clan featuring other characters. Um, it doesn't have to be specifically written by Jean Lun Yang with art by uh, Gudihiru, though I wouldn't mind it. Um, though I think it would be cool to get more stories in that world. Um, the circus scene is one of my favorites as well because it's where we find out the kind of the impetus behind the Clark Kent Superman personas. But um, I... Honestly, you know, I, um, it's tough because I really love Superman Smashes the Clan for what it is, for just kind of how it is by itself. Uh, we also, as Ryan mentioned, we did a full episode on that. It was my birthday episode, I believe, um, for this year. And I, I don't know if going back to that world would cheapen, you know, the, the incredible story that was told there. But I don't I don't think I would mind it either. You know, for those of you who don't know, you know, that story was based off of the original Superman serials, the, the radio serials from the 40s and 50s. And Batman showed up on those in that show. Not a whole lot of times. It's probably just like uh, probably like a dozen times across its whole run. But um 
usually you know batman would kind of show up if like bud collier needed like a break and they'd be like ah we'll bring in batman but like they teamed up on more than one occasion and i wouldn't mind seeing something like that i mean uh i'm reading uh the old time radio catalog uh page on this uh let me see here it says da, 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 da. uh batman only had a few scattered episodes in the series these include the single episode of the batman mystery club and batman and robin's christmas carol caper um so they did cross paths multiple times uh in the original radio serial superman was able to deduce batman and robin's identities by using his x-ray vision to look under their masks because it's in the 40s and like they were just cloth masks at this point <laughs> um so the big story that featured them was uh in december of 1945 where superman was in desperate need of um of Batman and Robin's help. So in the previous story arc to this, the Atom Man uh, kind of discovered kryptonite and discovered that Superman would lose all of his powers when faced with kryptonite. And so even though Superman escapes from the Atom Man, he still like needs to not only defeat Atom Man, but also to round up the remaining pieces of kryptonite. So he enlists the aid of Batman and Robin to help him out since, of course, they're not affected by it. Um, there's also... A story arc uh, in January, that following month, where uh, Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent uh, investigate a series of bank robberies on the outskirts of Metropolis, where the only the only possible suspect is Superman. So I wouldn't mind either of those stories. I think you could probably combine aspects of both. Um, I think it's absolutely possible that you could kind of tie in um, Superman, you know, meeting the Flying Graysons or something like that. I would love stories, especially if they, you know, took inspiration from the original radio serials as well as something like Robin's Reckoning. I too would love to, you know, love seeing Batman in that fathership role, whether it's with Dick, Jason, especially Tim, uh, or Damien, or Duke. I really, uh, I enjoy those kinds of stories. And so I, especially, you know, the premise of like, you know, is there another Superman, you know, uh, trying to figure out this, you know, mystery of the bank robbers and is Superman robbing these banks? I think it could be, could be really fun and you could incorporate some of, you know, Robin's reckoning of, you know, them meeting Superman, discovering their identities. I think it'd be a good time. Um, it doesn't specifically have to cross over with them, but I think that if they wanted to kind of keep that style of storytelling, keep that same vibe and tone, it would be, um, it would, it would make sense to, go that route so um once again thank you to ryan for writing in like i said if you want to write in you want to get my uh opinions my thoughts if you want me to give like a quick pitch like this uh feel free to write in to geeksplained at gmail.com and put mailbag in the subject line um i read every single email that is sent to me and i really do appreciate those of you who do reach out uh, and speaking of pitches Next week, episode 135 is going to be the next edition of our Pitch It series. Uh, we haven't done a Pitch It since episode 100, which was my Superman film. If you are a fan of Superman, if you're a fan of 
um, good old-fashioned Superman stories, check that out. It's probably the episode I'm the most proud of. I love that episode. It's my favorite. Um, so feel free to check that out. But uh, next week, we are going to be tackling my pitch for an Iron Fist animated series. I'm going to be talking about all three seasons. That's right, three seasons worth of Iron Fist animated goodness. So tune in next week for that same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geek Explain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe, and we will see you next time.